So on the first topic they've uh, given us to address uh, tonight, this whole question of given all the options, uh, why Jesus? And then we're going to take uh, questions for maybe 10, uh, 15 minutes. I'll take the uh, easy questions and Capo will come back and take the difficult questions. He doesn't know that, but we'll make him do some hard work. And then afterwards, uh, my colleague from RZAM, uh, Sean Hart, is going to come and look at the whole question of, uh, of suffering. And uh, Sean, in fact, broke his ankle. Um, a couple of weeks ago playing, uh, playing a basketball, I think it was. So if you really want to see if he believes what he tells you about suffering, just kick his right foot as he goes past you, and then he can really speak from a place of pain and suffering and injustice uh, this evening. He's the kind of guy who will really rise to that challenge, and he's giving me one of those looks that says, shut up and start talking. So... Um, Given all the options, why uh, Jesus? It won't have escaped your attention, will it, that we live in a, uh, a very pluralistic world. You know, all around us are hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, different religions and uh, belief systems. Um, you know, I grew up in London, and I lived in Toronto for seven years until quite recently. And where I was in Toronto, in uh, Canada, you know, you could choose from every belief system going. You could choose from Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism, Jainism, Islamism, atheism, secularism. You could even support the local hockey team the maple leaves, we called that masochism, and uh, all of those different isms. Now, given that huge uh, range of beliefs, of course, that raises some interesting questions, and one of the questions it raises is how should we think about that world of other faiths? I mean, Christians are sometimes accused of arrogance for claiming that Jesus and Jesus alone is the only way to God, or that Christianity and Christianity alone is true, given all these different other options. In fact, I regularly meet people who say, look, if we could just embrace the idea that all religions are essentially the same, every religion is an equally valid path to God, then the world would be a much happier, peaceful place, and we'd all get on with each other. In fact, I had a friend of mine uh, who used to teach at the University of Toronto, and he had this uh, illustration he liked to use. I remember once sitting, uh, drinking coffee with him uh, in Starbucks. Uh, he was paying. I couldn't possibly afford Starbucks, or, or six bucks, we used to call it in Canada. And uh, I was sitting drinking coffee with him, and he, he introduced this illustration to me to try and persuade me that I should embrace his idea that all religions are essentially the same. He said to me, why don't you, why don't you think of, of you know, religion and, and God as being like the summit of a mountain? God is the, is the summit of the mountain, and there are, there are lots of different paths you know, up that mountain, and they're all, all equally valid. There's the Buddhist path up the mountain, and the Hindu path up the mountain, and the Christian path, and the, the atheist path. Well, that just goes around in circles around the bottom, but you, know, you get the idea. And um, you know, rather than say that there's just one path up the mountain. Why not recognize that, that every religious path leads to the summit? And then he took a you know, swig of his cappuccino and, and looked at me as if this was the wisest, smartest thing anybody had ever said. And I sort of thought about this for a moment, and then I, then I looked at him and I said, that, that sounds beautiful, Jeff. There's just one problem. He looked a bit perturbed. What's the problem? He said. Well, I said, the problem is this. As a hobby, I climb mountains. Um, it's because I'm so short, I like to compensate when I'm in the, in the backcountry. I mean, I once actually made it as far as Everest Base Camp a few years ago. I've climbed quite a few mountains. And Jeff, I said to him, I said, I can tell you from many years of experience, every path does not lead to the top of the mountain. Some paths only lead to the washrooms. Some paths lead over the back of the mountain. Some paths do just go round and round the bottom. Some paths end in vertiginous, deathly rock faces because they were built by rock climbers, the most insane people on the planet. Um, every path does not lead to the top of the mountain. 
He looked a bit perturbed, and I said, it's worse than that. He said, really? I said, yes. I said, where would you have to be standing, Jeff? Where would you have to be standing to see that every path led to the top? He instantly said, well, I guess you'd need to be standing on the top. I went, no, no, no. If you stand on the summit of a mountain, I don't know how many mountains you, you guys have climbed here, but if you stand on the top of most mountains, you can't see where all the paths go because they kind of disappear over the edge. So I said, that doesn't work. He thought about it, and then he said, well, I... I guess maybe you'd have to be floating several hundred feet above the summit of the mountain. I said, yes, like a Google Earth for you. He went, yes, absolutely. I said, well, here's my problem, Jeff. You said God is the summit of the mountain. You have now positioned yourself floating several hundred feet above the summit of the mountain. So who the heck do you think you are? He hasn't used that illustration since, interestingly enough. You see, the idea that all religions are essentially the same, however you try and address it or break it down or explore it, doesn't, doesn't really work. It doesn't work for a number of reasons. One, all of the different religions teach things quite differently. There are profound differences between them. And also, I think, because it's the very nature of truth to be exclusive. You know, it's not somehow arrogant as a Christian to stand up and say, look, I believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is unique. It's the nature of truth to be exclusive. If you say that 2 plus 2 is 4, you are excluding the possibility that the answer is 5 or 9 or 437.2. You know, truth by its nature uh, is exclusive. In fact, every time you open your mouth and make a truth claim, you are excluding the opposite. You are excluding the opposite. In fact, the only way not to exclude somebody is to just zip your mouth and say absolutely nothing, to be utterly silent. That's actually the only way to avoid uh, excluding somebody. But also, as I say, built into this idea that all religions are essentially the same, the assumption built into there that intrigues me is this idea that uh, all of the world's religions teach the same thing. I run across person after person after person, particularly when I speak on university campuses, who've sort of bought into this idea that, well, every religion you know, is essentially the same. But the simple fact is that is not the case. There are profound differences between the different religions of the world. Most of them teach, in many cases, entirely the, the opposite thing. You know, it intrigues me, for example, that the question I'm often asked, the way this, this question of the world's religions is often put, people will often come to me and say things like, you know, isn't it the case, Andy, why isn't it the case that can't we just say that you know, all religions lead to God? Can't we just say that all religions lead to God? And I say, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I don't know if you've ever noticed this, my friends, but all the religions of the world don't claim to lead to God. They don't claim that. Take Buddhism, for example. Buddhism teaches, if you, if you study the teachings of Buddhism, Buddhism will tell you, I got the clicker to work, there we go, finally worked. Buddhism will tell you that, uh, you know, what happens uh, at the end of your life? Well, if you're a faithful Buddhist and you follow the teachings of Buddha, this is really not working actually, guys. Is there any chance you can raise that laptop up slightly? Yeah, it's because it's stuck behind the back. There we go, look at that. Fantastic, there we go, look at that. Yeah, Buddhism, for example, would teach you that if you follow the teachings of the Buddha, what will happen is you can obliterate the self and your consciousness is sort of absorbed into everything and you lose your identity and you end up with debt with non-existence at the end of your life. No, you don't meet God. In fact, there is no God uh, in Buddhism. Hinduism is similar. In Hinduism, if you're a faithful Hindu, then you kind of get absorbed into the cosmic oneness at the end of everything, at the end of the karmic cycle. You don't meet God. There is no, there is no personal God to be met. 
Uh, what about atheism? I include atheism here because actually many sociologists will tell you that atheism increasingly functions like a religion. Well, if you're an atheist, what waits you at the end of your life? Well, certainly not God. What awaits you at the end of your life is death and non-existence. And interestingly, what about Islam? Many people would think, surely, I mean, Islam teaches that, you know, it's the way to God. Well, no. I've actually been studying Islam for 20 years. My, my PhD is in Quranic studies. And it's fascinating. I noticed this a few years into beginning to study the Quran, that the Quran has these quite sort of evocative descriptions of what paradise is like. It tells you that in heaven there'll be rivers of wine and crystal clear fountains of water and beautiful fruit trees and, and virgins for the young men. But God is missing. Faithful Muslims are not looking forward to meeting and walking and talking with God in heaven. They're instead looking forward to this kind of heavenly paradise. In fact, there is only one of the world's major, one of the world's great religions that tells you that the point of life, the, what the whole thing is about, is a relationship with God and offers that as a promise for those who follow faithfully, and that is Christianity. Only Christianity actually offers that promise of meeting God. None of the other world's religions claim that. Now, interestingly, though, I mentioned Islam as my last point of, uh, of comparison there. And as I say, I did that deliberately because I've been studying that religion uh, for some 20 years or so. And I think the interesting thing is I think Islam is a very good test case, actually, uh, this evening to explore in a little bit more detail uh, this idea that the world's religions are not the same and to look at what's unique about Christianity and, uh, and unique about Jesus in particular. Islam offers us a very good comparison and comparisons are helpful. In fact, one of my, uh, my friends, Oz Guinness, who, uh, who's a, a member of our speaking team at RZAM, Oz has this lovely little line. He says, contrast is the mother of clarity, by which he means when you compare two things, you understand them both better. And I think it's very interesting when you compare Islam and what it has to say with what Christianity has to say on a number of issues, you suddenly see uh, Christianity in a unique light and see some very important differences uh, that come out that I begin to shed a bit more light on this question of why, given all the options, uh, we should choose Jesus. And especially what's interesting when you compare what Islam teaches about God and who God is like with what the Bible and with what Christianity teaches, especially God revealed in Jesus, uh, we see some quite astonishing things. Let me, I want to show you actually four differences between the God of Islam and the God of the Bible that I think shed incredible light on the uniqueness of the God we see in Christianity, the God we see described by the Bible. Here's the first difference I want to talk about for a few minutes. The Bible is very clear uh, that God is relational. The God of the Bible is a God who is a relational God. In fact, this is the story of the Bible from the very first page to the very last page. Right at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, uh, if you read that story carefully, you discover that just after he's made everything, he's made the world and uh, filled it with uh, plants and animals and human beings and real estate agents and you know, all kinds of things that God made. Um, and um, what does God do? Well, God, according to the Bible, steps into creation and is found walking and talking with Adam and Eve there in the Garden of Eden. The God of the Bible then steps into history dramatically in the person of Jesus Christ. He walks and talks with us. And then the very last book of the Bible, almost in the last page of the last book of the Bible, the, Bible, the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, there's the great promise held out that for those who uh, put their trust in Jesus, then what's awaiting us in heaven? Well, it's relationship. It's walking and talking with God again, just as it was in the beginning. The God of the Bible is a God who is relational. 
And as I say, that's seen most profoundly in, a, in Jesus, who was not just a man according to the Bible, but was God himself walking and talking among us. Now, what's interesting, it turns to the Koran, and that idea is entirely missing. The God of the Koran, Allah, the God of Islam, is not a relational God. Uh, nowhere does he walk and talk with human beings. The Quran retells, it borrows the story of Adam and Eve from the Bible, but it changes it. And one of the changes it makes, God is not present there, walking and talking in the garden. The promise of heaven and paradise there in the Quran, God is missing. He's not there in heaven to be related to. And of course, the Quran denies that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus and walked and talked in history. The God of the Quran is missing from the beginning of history. He's missing from the end of history. And he's missing from the middle of history. He is the absent God. He is not a relational God. Nowhere in its 114 chapters does the Quran ever promise Muslims they can have a relationship with God. He is simply not that kind of God. He's a very different God indeed. He's not relational. Secondly, so the God of the Bible is a God who's relational, and we see that most clearly in Jesus. Secondly, the God of the Bible is a God who reveals himself and can be known. And in fact, this is crucial, because I don't know if you've noticed this, it's only possible to have a relationship with somebody if they make themselves known. Have you noticed this? If you are walking out of this church tonight, this evening, and uh, for those of you who are, who are single, if you're married, don't do this illustration, you'll get in trouble with your spouse. But for those of you this evening who are single, you're walking out of the church this evening, and you glance across the, uh, the, the lobby, the foyer out there, and your eyes suddenly fall upon the most beautiful or the most handsome example of the opposite sex you have ever seen in your entire life. Ladies, someone even more attractive than me, if that's possible to... Hey! I don't... That's my ego just destroyed totally. Anyway, you see this wonderful example of the opposite sex. And uh, you put some inquiries out. You have to discover who this person is. And then you discover something to your horror. You discover this person, actually gorgeous as they are, is actually really shy. And they only ever come out of their apartment once or twice a year. You know, for occasionally for events at church like this. Otherwise, they lock themselves away, order their groceries online, never talk to anybody. They do occasionally come out for meetings of the local Agrophobics Anonymous group. Um, but that's a closed-door meeting, uh, so you can't... Thank you, you're awake this evening. Now, of course, you couldn't have a relationship with that person because they're not willing to make themselves known. And the same goes for God. If God hid himself away in heaven and did not reveal himself to us, then we couldn't have a relationship with him. But the God of the Bible is not that kind of God. He's a God who reveals not just his commands and his character and his commands and his laws, but he reveals his character. In fact, in the Old Testament, the very famous story of Moses at the burning bush... God reveals his personal name, Yahweh, to Moses. And on page after page, the God of the Bible reveals his, reveals his character, his identity, and he says to us, he promises that we can know him. The commands that God gives in Scripture are not just to follow his, his commands, but to also know him and know him personally. And of course, most, uh, most supremely, we see that in the person of Jesus, who said to his disciples, if anyone, if you have seen me, you have seen God the Father, through Jesus, God making himself known to us. Well, again, that idea is completely missing uh, from the Quran, missing from the scripture of Islam, where if you were to read the uh, 114 chapters of the Quran, you would discover that the, the, uh, the Allah, the God of Islam, reveals his commands, he reveals his laws, but nowhere are Muslims ever told or ever promised they can know God personally. In fact, the idea that you could know God and have a relationship with him in Islam is simply blasphemous. Uh, it's impossible. So the God of the Bible is a God who's relational. He's a God who can be known. 
Those are ideas are missing entirely from Islam. But there's a third one that's perhaps even more important, and that's, uh, that's that the God of the Bible is a God who is love. That's the message of the Bible, for, again, on, on, on almost every page. In fact, uh, in the New Testament, we're even told in one of the shortest verses of the Bible that, that God is love. Now, what's interesting, I find when you talk to people about religions, one of the common ideas I hear is that every religion teaches that God is love. I, I lost, I've lost count of how many times people have said that to me. Every, all the world's great religions agree that God is love. And when I hear that, I always want to push back slightly and, and ask a question here. What would be, what's the highest form of love? We throw a word, around, a word love around quite lightly. But think for a moment, what is the greatest form of love we could possibly imagine? Any ideas? What's the greatest form of love? Give your life, somebody said. Excellent. Yeah, in fact, actually, that was Jesus' answer. Jesus actually said this quite specifically. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no, no one than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. And we all instinctively know this. Self-sacrifice is the highest form of love. And if I, was, uh, if I was at home with my kids and my, uh, my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter is sort of playing out the front of the, uh, the, front of the house and suddenly I hear one of the uh, garbage trucks in the na- neighborhood racing down the road, they're practicing to be NASCAR drivers, I look out through the window, I see what's about to happen, I rush out of my front door, I grab my daughter Katrina, I throw her out of the way of the truck and in so doing, get squished and killed. Anyone who saw that or read about that would instantly, presumably, go, what, what, you know, what, what love? And he had for his, his daughter. He was willing to lay his life down without thinking about it. Or take a historical example. The gentleman on the screen behind me, Maximilian Kolbe, his story deserves to be a little bit better well known than it is. He was a Polish Catholic priest. Uh, and in 1941, I believe it was, he was uh, arrested by the Nazis um, during World War II. He'd been um, helping uh, smuggle Jews out of Poland where he, uh, where he lived and uh, smuggle Jewish families out of the country and uh, rescue them. And uh, the Nazis discovered he was doing this. He was arrested, and uh, he was uh, taken to the notorious Auschwitz concentration camp. Now, one year after he was arrested, three prisoners escaped from Auschwitz. They, they made it out. They made it over the fence and away. And in order to, in order to deter future escape attempts, the camp commandant, uh, gathered all of the prisoners in the prison yard and announced that 10 men were going to be picked at random, and those 10 prisoners were going to be locked up in an underground cell, no food, no water, no light, and just left to die. As a warning to prisoners, this is what happens if you escape, your friends will die. And 10 people's names were picked at random, and one of the people whose names were picked was a, was a friend uh, of Maximilian Kolbe's. And as his friend's name was read out, this man burst into tears and sobs and began crying out, but my, my, my family, my, my wife, my children. Maximilian stepped forward and looked the commandant in the eye and said, Sir, may I take the place of my friend? Permission was granted, and he, along with nine other prisoners, were locked up in the underground cell where they took two and a half weeks to die. Greater love hath nobody than they lay down their life for their friend. Of course, that raises an interesting question, doesn't it? If God is a God of love, then God, of course, by definition, is the greatest being. And that means the love that he demonstrates must be, surely, the greatest form of love, right? And if we can love supremely by self-sacrifice, and God can't, then each of us here this evening can love in a way that's greater than God, and that's nonsensical, that we could do something like that that God couldn't. Unless, of course, the story of the Bible 
is true, that God steps into history in the person of Jesus Christ, goes to the cross and gives his life for each one of us to deal with our rebellion and our screw-ups and our hang-ups. God, the greatest act of love by the greatest possible being, there at the heart of the Christian story. Of course, the Quran doesn't have that story. The Quran denies that Jesus was God come in the flesh. The Quran denies that God did that, which means that the God of Islam is not a God of love. He's not a God who has self-sacrificed. He's not a God who has demonstrated that greatest form of love and is therefore a very different God indeed. So the God of the Bible is a God who is relational. He's a God who reveals himself and can be known. He's a God who is love. And one last one, and we'll draw this to a close. Uh, Fourthly, he's a God who has demonstrated that love by suffering for us. As I just began to illustrate there at the end of that last point with the idea of the cross built into uh, Christianity. This is a hugely important idea. It's hugely important because of one of the ideas that that the Bible is very clear about, and actually the Quran teaches as well, both Islam and Christianity talk a lot about uh, compassion. The God of the Bible is a God who is described as a God who is compassionate, and it's actually the most common description in the Quran for Allah, the Islamic God, is he is a compassionate God. And Muslims will tell you they believe in a God of compassion. But I wonder if you've ever thought of again about the word compassion. It's interesting to look at words. What does the word compassion mean? What's the word? We throw it around. What does it actually mean? Well, it's interesting that the word compassion is a combination. It's two, it's two Latin words, actually, squished together. Com, meaning with, and passion, meaning suffer. Compassion means to, to suffer alongside, to actually come alongside somebody in their suffering, to, for, and for your coming alongside them and, and dealing with their problems to actually cost you Something. We can illustrate this quite nicely. If you're walking through, uh, you know, a downtown, one of the towns here, you know, one, after, one evening, and you see a homeless person perhaps sleeping in a shop doorway, and uh, you look at the other passers-by, the other pedestrians, and you sort of call out, hey, homelessness is wrong, and then you walk on by and you do nothing. I mean, you've made a moral point. You've been a moralizer. Have you been compassionate? No, you haven't done anything. You've done absolutely nothing except made a point or, you know, a verbal tweet or something. Or perhaps if you're a university student here or a college student this evening and you're, you know, you're walking across campus later in the week and you see, a, you see one student being racially abused by another group of students and, and you call out to the crowds. You go, hey, racism is wrong. And maybe you even put a nice little motto like that on your Instagram feed and, you know, <laughs> you've done that already. And, um, you know, again, you've been a moralizer, right? You've made a political point. You've, you've, you've sort of told people what you stand for, but you've done nothing. Have you been compassionate? No, you've been, you've been flip all use, quite frankly. You've done absolutely nothing. Now, we, we run the story. You see the homeless person sleeping in the shop doorway. You stop. You've got plans for the evening, but you throw those plans out the window. You take that person out for a meal. You find them in bed for the night. Maybe even invite them back to your apartment and let them sleep in your spare room. You know, there may be a risk. You don't know their background, but you, you're willing to do that. You're willing to pay that price. Have you been compassionate? Yeah, now you've been compassionate. You see the student being racially abused on on campus. And yeah, you shout out, racism is wrong, but you don't stop there. You walk over, and even though there are six bullies and only one of you, you know you're probably going to get all kinds of stuffing kicked out of you. Still, you wade in to try and rescue this uh, this poor victim of racism. Have you been compassionate? Yes, you have. Why? Because you have suffered alongside. See, compassion requires action. The God of the Bible is a compassionate God because he's looked at our suffering 
and the injustice and what sin and evil and human uh, rebellion has done here on this planet. And he didn't just stay up there in heaven and do nothing about it. He took on flesh and the person of Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, paid with the last drop of his blood to deal with the problem of uh, sin and human rebellion in order that forgiveness could be offered out and reconciliation and relationship with him made possible. He paid the price. He is a compassionate God. The God in the Quran, Allah, the God of Islam, the Quran is very clear. It didn't step into history, didn't go to the cross, can't suffer. The Quran in Islamic theology is very clear that the God of Islam is not that kind of God, which means not merely is he not a loving God, it also means he's not a compassionate God. And what fascinates me about those four areas of difference between Islam and Christianity, that God is relational, that God can be known, that God is love, that God has suffered, is all those threads come together in the person of Jesus. It's what God does in Jesus that demonstrates he's a relational God, the God who didn't stay in heaven but came down to walk with us, the God who came down so he could be known, the God who came down to demonstrate his love, the God who went to the cross in order to demonstrate his love and his compassion. You know, it's Christianity, it's Jesus rather, that makes Christianity unique. Not some sort of teaching or ideas built into the Christian faith, but it's the person of Jesus that makes Christianity unique. And I often find it fascinating that you can, you can get agreement from this, even from skeptics and agnostics and my atheist friends. You know, I often run this thought experiment. I like to say to people, you know, it's interesting, isn't it, that you could take the founder of any other religion out of history and that religion could still stand. If the Buddha had never been born, somebody else could have started the system of teaching known as Buddhism, the, uh, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and this kind of stuff, or the other way around, rather. It didn't need to be Buddha. Somebody else could have done it. If Muhammad had never been born, the Quran could have come with somebody else. Islamic theology is very clear on this point. There was nothing special about Muhammad. But Jesus, on the other hand... You see, Christianity is not a set of teaching brought by Jesus Christ or a set of moral commandments brought by Jesus Christ. Christianity is Jesus Christ. As uh, some comedian once remarked, if you remove Christ from Christian, all you are left with are the letters I, A, and N. And Ian cannot help you. <laughs> Do you know, in conclusion, it's fascinating, I think, in some ways, that we're even having this discussion, you know, here today. You know, some 2,000 years after Jesus' short public ministry. Why is it astonishing? Well, the point, in some ways, is, is made quite beautifully by a very famous meditation uh, written about a century ago. Let me read you uh, these words. Some of you may have heard this, uh, this, uh, this uh, short little paragraph before. He was born in an obscure village the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never went to college, never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that one normally associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 
all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as much as that one solitary life. And that one solitary life, what fascinates me, brings, I guess, what I would like to call the whole God question into sharp focus. I often have debates and dialogues with you know, atheist friends and skeptical friends. Maybe you have friends like that. Um, and that debate often circles around, does God exist? What's the evidence that God exists? And on and on it goes. But what I find fascinating is the question that lies at the heart of Christianity is not, does God exist? That's not an unimportant question, but I don't think it's the main question. It's way too abstract. The question that the Bible is concerned with is far more personal. And it's this question, what kind of God are we talking about? You see, I sometimes think that many of my atheist friends wouldn't mind a kind of distant, remote kind of God of the philosophers, the kind of God who kind of winds up the clockwork of the universe, sets everything running, and then disappears off and leaves us to get on with it. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who steps into history in the person of Jesus. And he's not that kind of God. He's a kind of God who's got his nose right up to the glass and is kind of tapping on the window looking for our attention. He's a God who's got his foot in the door. He's a God who demands our attention. And he's a God who steps into history in the person of Jesus and forces the question that Jesus liked to ask all the time. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You see, your answer to that question doesn't merely determine whether or not you believe in God. And quite frankly, that's not merely a question the Bible is not concerned with. It's a question that doesn't really bother me either, frankly. The rather, the question is, are you willing to put your trust in that God who revealed himself in Jesus? The God who went to the cross, the God who gave every drop of his blood uh, for you, the God who demonstrated his love to deal with our brokenness and our hang-ups and our screw-ups. And you see that Jesus, Jesus reveals a God who is utterly unique. So why choose Jesus? That was the question we began with this evening. Why choose Jesus? Simply because no other God lived the life that he did, gave his life the way that he did, demonstrated his love by suffering the way that he did. Nobody compares to him. Which simply I say to my skeptical friends and my agnostic friends raises the question, if you have not responded to God's offer of love, and forgiveness, and peace, and hope, and reconciliation that's offered there in the life of Jesus Christ. My simple question is, why not? What is holding you back? And let's deal with that question so that you can meet him and respond, and know peace, and forgiveness, and joy. Thank you for listening so patiently.